go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. That's Philippians chapter 2. The focus of our study will be there tonight. And as you turn there, I want to tell you a story about a young 16-year-old boy who went to his dad and said, Dad, I'm 16 now. Isn't it time that I had my own car? And the dad looked at him and said, Well, before I get you a car, a, a few things are going to have to change. And the boy said, well, what do you mean? Dad said, number one, you're going to have to bring your grades up. That C average isn't cutting it. Number two, you're going to have to get a part-time job. You're going to have to be able to cover some of your expenses that come with that vehicle. And number three, you're going to have to cut your hair because it's too long. Well, the boy waited some time and came back to his dad and said, Dad, I... I think it's time to get a car. And his dad asked, I've already told you what you got to do to get the car. And he goes, well, well, Dad, haven't you noticed I've gotten my grades up? It is an A average now, not a C average. And I got that part-time job you told me to. And his dad said, yeah, but you haven't cut that hair yet. And the boy said, well, Dad, I was flipping through my Bible the other day, and I saw this picture of Jesus in there. And in that picture, he had long hair. And without missing a beat, the dad said, yeah, and he walked everywhere too, didn't he? (laughs) You see, sometimes we don't really want to be like Christ. But the call of the gospel, the expectation throughout Scripture, is that we will be like Christ. And there's no better place for us to start this year as we focus on the home than on the expectation that we be like Christ. Think about it. If you journey through the Bible, through the New Testament in particular, you'll come to passages like John chapter 13 and verse 34, where Jesus himself said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. The expectation is that we're going to love like Christ. And you can also find that same love expectation in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, where Paul instructs us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And even in the context of the home, Paul gets more specific in that same chapter of Ephesians chapter 5. You get down to verse 25, and he tells husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The Christ-likeness call is evident in all the passages that tell us to love like he does. But then you can keep journeying through the New Testament. You can come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. It's in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1 that Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul's goal isn't to hold himself up as this grand example that everyone should be like him. What he's saying is, In the fashion that I'm able to imitate Christ, you can imitate me. Because our ultimate objective is to imitate Christ. And if I'm successfully doing that, then you can imitate me. But the goal is to imitate Christ. Once again, we have a passage that's calling on us to be Christ-like. And you can even go to the book of 1 Peter, where in chapter 2, between verses 21 and 23, Peter says this, For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What Peter is saying there is Christ has given you an example of how to endure wrongful treatment. Christ has showed you how to endure persecution. Christ has showed you how to endure suffering. Christ has showed you a pattern of behavior that you are to imitate. And then we can get over to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, where John said, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If you claim to be in Christ, then you ought to imitate his walk. That's what that verse is telling us. All of these passages are calling on us to be Christ-like. That is a fundamental expectation of God's Word. If you're not Christ-like, then are you really in Christ? That's the question. And so as we delve into this new focus on our home, and we start off tonight with a study of God's Word, we'll continue this month on this very subject of Christ-likeness. Next week we'll be engaging uh, well, we'll have charge. The week after that, we're going to have a roundtable discussion of what it means to be Christ-like in the home. And on the concluding Sunday night of this month, we're going to have a combination of a song service and a prayer service as we gather here to, on, on that evening. And it's all going to be themed around being Christ-like. That needs to be our emphasis as we kick off, because if we fail to be Christ-like in the home, then how are we going to improve our homes? And this idea of being Christ-like is, is, is at its clearest moment in Scripture when you arrive in Philippians chapter 2. Right there in verse 5, there it is. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or if you were to go to the New American Standard Version, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Clearly this passage is teaching us to be like Christ when it comes to our mindset or when it comes to an attitude. But what is the attitude? What is the mindset of Christ? More often than not, when we come to Philippians chapter 5, we just keep going, hopping into verse 6 and going down through verse 8, 9, and 10 and focusing on Christ's description by Paul in this beautifully written section. But this attitude, I think when Paul says have this attitude, he's actually pointing backward instead of forward in the passage. I think he's referencing back to verses 3 and 4. And we need to pay close attention to what is said there. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let me tell you, there may not be a more difficult instruction in all of Scripture than Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Especially in our culture, in our society today. And I want you to take a moment to break down the statements that appear there and think about what they really mean. Let's start with that very first statement. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is an anti-selfishness policy. This is an anti-arrogance clause. This is a call for life to not be about you and to not be about me. 
And I've said this before many, many times in my preaching, but we're not created that way. When we enter the world as a newborn, we know nothing but selfishness. We know from our perspective as a newborn, everything's about us. We cry when we don't get our way. We cry when we need something to eat. We cry when we've soiled ourselves. We cry when we're tired. Everything's about the parents tending to our needs. We have to learn to be selfless. That is something that is not inherently built within us. That's why we struggle with it. It's a learned behavior. It's something you have to grow into. But yet that's what we're called to be. To not be selfish and to not be arrogant. To not have everything be about us. Selflessness is the epitome of Christianity. That's why Paul leads off here with instructions to have the mindset or attitude of selflessness. He continues on there by saying, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, humility is a great word we throw out there, but our culture doesn't fully grasp it. Sometimes our culture thinks humility is just self-deprecation, just thinking poorly of yourself. But that's not what humility is. Humility is actually thinking quite highly of yourself, but recognizing, but recognizing that you're not the most important person in the world. Humility, as one author said, is not self-deprecation. It is self-forgetfulness. It's that ability to not focus on yourself, to not emphasize yourself, To not put yourself on a pedestal. And it's interesting here. Because as Paul speaks about this attribute of humility, he pairs it in this statement with the ability to consider others more significant than yourself. He's saying that humility is your ability to minimize yourself and maximize others. And yet, this is so offensive to us. Because some of us will look at this statement and look at this instruction and say, he's not better than me. He's not more significant than me. He doesn't deserve that. She doesn't deserve that. She shouldn't be considered ahead of me. We have that natural tendency. We have that mindset at times where we do comparisons with other people and we go, wait, I'm better than that person. I'm more spiritual than that person. I do more good works than that person. I attend worship services more often than that person. Why should they be more significant than me? Is there any point in these instructions where Paul offers an exception clause to this policy for those who are inferior to you spiritually? Is there any point in this instruction where Paul offers any sort of exception clause for those whom you outperform? 
See, the correct understanding of this passage is, is not, uh, the correct understanding of this passage is not looking at it and thinking in terms of comparing ourselves to others. It's looking at it and understanding that your objective is just to put other, others first. Your objective goes along with the greatest command. Think about it this way. This statement is just an intensification of the second part of the greatest command. What's the second part of the greatest command? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. Really, you can sum up the greatest command into love God, love others. If you want to put it in the most simplistic terms, love God, love others. And what this statement here by Paul is doing is intensifying that second part of loving others. Don't just love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor better than yourself. That's essentially what Paul's trying to communicate here. Love your neighbor so much that you're not just looking for reciprocity, but that you're willing to go above and beyond for their interests. But it's easier said than done. Because to count others more significant than ourselves requires a great deal of selflessness. And then look at verse 3. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now notice what this passage does not say. This passage does not say that you cannot have your own interests. This passage does not rule out your interests, nor your pursuit of them, or your satisfaction of them. If you look at this passage, it says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, so that's including your interests. The idea here is that you're not just going to focus on your own, but you're going to focus on that of others, the interests, the needs, the wants of others. You're going to be considerate of the things that matter to them. Remember, we just appealed to the second part of the greatest command, the love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that in that command, implicit with it is love of self, because if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, you first have to love yourself. You're not getting ruled out here. What is happening in this passage, what Paul is communicating, is that you not only consider your interests, but you should also be thinking about and addressing the interests of others. That means you can't be self-absorbed. The attitude or mindset we're called to possess is one that intentionally sees the needs of others, intentionally considers the needs of others, and intentionally does what can be done to meet the needs of others. And all of this, from verses 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 2, is a call to be selfless. The attitude that we are to possess is a selfless attitude, and it is the attitude that Paul says Jesus possessed. And after you cross verse 5 and you get into verse 6 through 8, what Paul does is he shows us how Jesus modeled this attitude. 
Paul says, all right, I need you to possess the attitude of Christ, the mindset of Christ. This is what it looked like in verse 3 and 4, and here's how he embodied it in verses 6 through 8. So if you look at verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This statement indicates that Jesus did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What Paul is saying is that Jesus in his pre-human state was like God in every respect. All the qualities that made God God were shared by Jesus. Things like omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence and immutability and eternality and immortality. Jesus possessed all of the very traits that God did. He was one with God. He was equal to God. But Jesus was not so selfish or conceited that he was unwilling to give those qualities up for the benefits of others. His equal standing with God was not not something he was going to hold on to when others needed him to let go of them. And that's why in the verse 7, we're told that he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When you hear those words, realize that they are indicating how Jesus counted others more significant than himself. It was just a few weeks ago when we looked at the term incarnation that we discussed some of the divine qualities that Jesus emptied himself of in order to experience life on this earth as a human. Now don't get me wrong, he did not stop being deity, but he did relinquish some divine attributes that would interfere with his human experience. Things like omniscience and omnipresence and immortality. He knew that the only way he could save us is if he became one of us and did what we couldn't, go through this life without sinning. In other words, he was so concerned about our need to be saved that he, in effect, forgot about himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And in so doing, he counted us more significant than himself. And then in verse 8, we read that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. You see how Paul talked about humility before telling us to have the mind of Christ and then showed us that Christ had humility? This statement indicates that Jesus looked to the interests of others. It was not in his best interest to die. There was no benefit to him in death. There was no advantage for Jesus in dying. All death did for him was make him experience the absolute worst physical, emotional, and spiritual pain possible. So why did he go through with it? Because he was focused on the interest of others. He was focused on our interest because it was in our best interest that a substitutionary sacrifice be made so we wouldn't have to pay the consequences of our sins. 
And he was focused on the interests of the Father because the will of the Father was for something, for someone to appease his righteous wrath so that his grace could be outpoured on mankind whom he loved. So Jesus' coming and dying was all evidence of his focus on the interests of others, whether that be us or his Father. You see, Jesus is the true embodiment of selflessness. And we're called to be just like him. Not one of you would disagree with me on that, I don't think. But the one place where we have a tendency to stop being Christ-like is the home. For a great many of us, and I can't speak for every household or every family represented here, but for a great many of us, I imagine that the home is where Christ-likeness often is minimized. My experience in pastoral counseling has led me to that conclusion. Here's why, or here's my suspicions. There's no scientific evidence for what I'm about to say, no philosophical training, no counseling uh, backing it up, no, no professional counseling backing it up. But I think one of two things happens when it comes to the home. I think either, number one, we're too comfortable. The home is a place where we're comfortable. The home is a place where you can be who you are without any repercussions. The home is a place where you can take off the mask. You can eliminate the fakeness. You can be what you are. So oftentimes the home is the place where the real us comes out. And sometimes the real us is inconsistent with Christ. And so for some of us, we're just too comfortable because the home is the safe environment. And so the home becomes this place where we stop imitating Christ because we believe it's safe there. Maybe we believe we're going to be loved no matter what we do. And I'm certain we will be. But maybe we stop treating the members of our household the way we should because love is assumed. Love doesn't have to be earned in a family like it does outside a family. Maybe it's in the context of the family that we take advantage of relationships because we have just become comfortable with the fact that they're not going anywhere that they're not going to leave us. Maybe some of the reasons why some of us fail to be Christ-like in the home is because we're too comfortable. But it may also be because we're too knowledgeable. Intimate relationships come with their fair share of knowledge of each other. And it may just be that for some of us, the reason we aren't Christ-like in the home is because we know each other's fears and failures and flaws 
and faux pas and every other F word I could come up with right now that fits that description. Maybe we know too much about each other and we use it against each other. Maybe in our times of frustration with loved ones, we'll pull out that pet peeve that we know grinds on them and we'll use it against them to agitate them or annoy them. Oh, wait, wait, none of y'all have ever been guilty of that. Not, no one in here would ever intentionally use something they know aggravates their loved one to get under their skin. Or maybe we'll use our knowledge of one another and the mistakes we've made, the sins we've committed, the wrongs we've done. Maybe we'll take that and package it and use it to elevate ourselves above our loved ones, to hold it against our loved ones, to show them that we're better in this moment, or to get them to do the things we want them to do. Maybe some of the times we're not Christ-like in the home because we know each other and we use it against each other. I'm certain we could come up with many more reasons why we fail to be Christ-like in the home. But tonight, I simply want you to realize that Christ-likeness isn't an article of clothing you put on and take off at your will. Christ-likeness isn't a characteristic that you don when you want to and you remove when it's inconvenient. If you put on Christ in baptism, if you choose to follow Christ, then you're choosing to imitate him day in, day out, 24, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's all the time, Christ-likeness. And that means that no matter how your day went at work or how your life is going at school or what's going on outside the home, that means no matter what, when you are at home, Christ-likeness reigns in your life there too. And maybe what we need is to remember that selflessness must be embodied in the home too. Maybe we need to be selfless with our affection. We need, to be, we need to make sure that our spouse or our children or our, our parents or our siblings, whoever it might be, maybe we need to make sure that they know we love them regardless of whether or not they reciprocate, regardless of whether or not they initiate, regardless of whether or not they communicate their affection for us. As we saw at the outset of this lesson, love is the most consistently mentioned way in which we are called to imitate Christ. And the repeated instruction to love one another as Christ loved us is evident in the Bible. Romans chapter 5 and verse 18 to, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, we're instructed to love like Christ who demonstrated his love for us when we were furthest from him, when we weren't reciprocating it, when we weren't even in a relationship with him. So maybe we need to be selfless with our affection 
And our love needs to be evident regardless of how our loved ones are treating us. Maybe we need to be selfless with our protection. We need to be selfless when it comes to how we guard our family against potential threats to its well-being. That may mean we need to sacrifice some of our entertainment, whether that be the music we listen to, the movies we watch, the shows we watch, or the video games we play. Maybe we need to be selective so that we prevent our family from having a negative impact from those forms of entertainment that might compromise its morality. That's exactly what Lot failed to do when he moved his tent as far as Sodom, despite the fact that the men of Sodom were very wicked. And that move ultimately cost him his home, his wife, his family's morality, as evidenced by his daughter's strategy for having children. So maybe we need to be selfless when it comes to how we protect our family. Maybe we need to be selfless with our forgiveness. Sometimes we need to be willing to forgive without needing contrition, reparations, or an admission of guilt. And we always need to be willing to apologize when we're in the wrong, regardless of whether or not other people are also in the wrong. Let's not forget that Jesus instructed both the offender and the offended to make things right in a relationship. Let's not forget that Jesus instructed us to forgive each other in the parable of the unmerciful servant an unlimited number of times. Let's not forget that forgiveness is tied to our salvation by Jesus in the commentary he gave on the Lord's Prayer. Maybe we need to be selfless with our forgiveness. And maybe we need to be selfless with our time. It's selfish to make your family schedule revolve around your schedule. So in order to be Christ-like in the home, there are going to be minutes and hours and days, maybe weekends, maybe months, maybe years, that you need to sacrifice your time for the benefit of others in your home. Let's not forget that Jesus was willing to have his life interrupted by a woman with a hemorrhaging problem when he was on his way to heal a dying girl. And from his example, we learn that sometimes you need to be selfless with your time. And we need to be selfless with our communication. It's selfish to hold back and not communicate with your loved ones. It prevents them from understanding you, from getting to know you better. It hinders them from being able to help you. It isolates them from you. So in order to be selfless with our communication, we need to share our thoughts and our feelings and our ambitions and our fears and our prayers and especially our faith with those who are blessed to share this life with us. If God wants to hear from us, And his love is poured out on us. Don't you see a correlation? That communication, his communication with us and our communication with him are evidence of love in that relationship? How much less for those who are made in his image when it comes to communication? And what about 
discipline. Maybe we need to be selfless with our discipline, particularly as parents. Sometimes we avoid disciplining our children because we don't want to be the bad guy or we don't want them to dislike us. But that's selfish. As parents, we have the responsibility of teaching and training our children, not of being their friend. And that means that we have to be selfless when it comes to disciplining them. Eli, the judge and priest who trained Samuel, was a good mentor but a bad father. God's greatest criticism of Eli was that he honored his sons above him in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 9. And he did that by not restraining them, as 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 13 says. We must remember that in the Bible we're told whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. That's Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 14. And so we need to be selfless when it comes to discipline. It's not about me as the discipliner. It's about them as the disciplined. And we may need to be selfless with our resources. Whether that be financial or material in some fashion, we need to be selfless with our resources. We need to be willing to share what we have with our family. We need to be willing to make sacrifices for those whom we love. That may mean we need to refrain from purchasing things we want in order to accommodate things others need. That may mean we need to share personal belongings even though we don't want to. That may mean that we have to learn contentment and patience and delayed gratification. Remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In the past few minutes, I've talked about selflessness in the context of affection and protection and forgiveness and time and communication and discipline and resources. And guess what? Over the next 12 months, every one of those topics is going to be featured in this format on Sunday nights. So I encourage you to be here every month, every Sunday, as we talk about the home in this unique format week in, week out, and these specific topics, because they matter to your home, whether that home is, is, is one individual or many, whether that home involves a married couple with children or not, whether that home involves a single person or not. As we close out tonight, I hope we appreciate the importance of selflessness, and I hope we understand that Christ embodied it. But I want to share with you one last story, a story I've actually shared before. It's about a little boy who came home from school one February afternoon and told his mother he wanted to make Valentine's Day cards for everyone in his class. Now, his mom's heart kind of sank when he told her that because she had witnessed time and again how he had been left out by all the other kids in the class. He didn't get invited to the birthday parties. He didn't get played with on the playground. But her son wanted to do that. So over a period of several days, they sat down and handcrafted 35 different cards that he would give to his classmates on Valentine's Day. And when that day arrived, he excitedly loaded those handmade cards into his bag and bolted out the door to go to school. 
But based on the way the other kids had treated him, his mother worried that he wouldn't get any in return. And he would come home very distraught. When the boy got home that afternoon, the first words out of his mouth were, not a one, not a single one. And as his mother prepared for the worst, he excitedly added, I didn't forget a one, not a single one. See, the point is that if we focus on others instead of ourselves, we'll never be disappointed. That's not just in our individual lives, but in our homes. If you focus on others, you will never be disappointed in this life or the life to come. This evening, as we talk about selflessness and we consider what Christ has done for us, maybe it has made you realize that his sacrifice was for you. And now you need to respond to it. And you can... You may respond tonight by putting on Christ in baptism and confessing your faith that he is the son of God and repenting of your sins. And in so doing, your sins will be forgiven. And maybe that's what you need to do tonight. But with this emphasis on home, maybe you realize you're not being Christ-like in your home. And you need to make a change. Because Christ is supposed to be in your home too. Whatever your need is this evening, we extend the Lord's invitation so that you can make things right. And we invite you to do so while together we stand and sing. There's power in the blood, power in the blood. There's wonderful power. 